Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the What's Important Now podcast, coming to you from the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico. Uh, as you may have seen, uh, I have assumed command of the U.S. Border Patrol Academy from the former chief of the academy, Jason Owens, who is now in the Del Rio sector. Um, I'd like to take this time to thank Chief Owens, uh, not only for his contributions to the basic academy uh, for the U.S. Border Patrol, but also for all that he did in developing uh, a, a communications department here at the academy to uh, give the academy a voice, but also to educate our listeners and inform them um, on all the different facets of not only the U.S. Border Patrol, but also uh, the greater enterprise of CBP, which I'm happy to um, introduce you today to the Acting Executive Assistant Commissioner for Enterprise Services for all of Customs and Border Protection, Ryan Scudder. Thanks, Chief Lander. Great to be here. Great to be at the Academy. Um, first, congratulations on your promotion to Chief of the Academy. Um, wonderful achievement. Second, thank you for allowing me to do the graduation speech today for Class 1177. That's a great opportunity for us to get back and, and reach out to the the newest trainees, our newest agents, actually not trainees anymore, agents. Um, so I appreciate that opportunity. Absolutely. So for uh, for those listeners out there, every time we have a graduation, uh, we ask members from uh, our, our entire CBP family to come back and speak to newly graduating agents to kind of give them their, uh, their life experiences and some things that uh, they can look forward to over the next 20 to 30 years of their careers and uh, no better people to do that than, than those who have donned the uniform before them. So thank you for doing that as well. And thank you for the uh, sentiments on the promotion. I'm happy to be here. So long title, right? Acting Executive Assistant Commissioner for Enterprise Services of Customs and Border Protection. And I want to get into that. But first, uh, I think it's important to note that um, even though you hold uh, this position, which by the way is one of the top six senior leader positions in all of CBP for all uh, the entire workforce, you started as a Border Patrol agent, right? So as I have here, it says you started the U.S. Border Patrol agent in 1994 as a member of Class 275, and you were assigned to the Nogales Station. And I have to ask you, because it's a rite of passage for this podcast, uh, do you remember your class chain? 100%. Vigilance, Integrity, Pride, 275. Excellent. So you, it's something that will uh, stick with you for your entire career, and you never forget it. So I want to I want to talk about Nogales just a little bit. This is this is a station of of extremely high flow of both uh, migrants and and especially narcotics uh, over time. And I just you know a lot of us weren't around in 1994. I don't want to tell you what I was doing in 1994. You probably don't want to know. But um, interestingly enough, can you kind of walk us through what Nogales Station looks like in 1994? Yeah, 1994 Nogales Station. For anybody that's been to it now, that's not what it was. It was a old Volkswagen dealership on the corner of Grand Avenue and Mariposa Road. A little bitty hole in the wall, maybe 30 or 40 agents um, that had a wagon wheel, light fixture still hanging from the, um, the light fixture in the main lobby. That's what it was. And we basically the garage, it was so small, the cells were small. We had to hold narcotics in the garage keep the you know, mechanics away from it. <laughs> Even at 40 agents, they had outgrown it a long time ago. It was, it was really yeah. small. So you're saying when you got in, Nogales Station, which uh, for context is probably the biggest station in the entire Border Patrol right now, if it's I had to six guess. six to 700 agents usually. So you said you got there and there was 40 agents. Right. And how, much, how, many, how many miles did you patrol back then? 
trying to think how much we actually took because we actually covered part of Sonoida Station. We covered another station. That's how small Tucson sector was it. Sonoida Station couldn't even man a midnight shift. Wow. So we covered a lot into Sonoida's area. I mean, Tucson sector is not the monster that everybody <laughs> sees today yeah. of 4,000 agents. It was super small. I mean, and Nogales was a, a normal station of 40 agents. Tucson didn't have many agents. Douglas, same thing. There were probably 30 or 40 agents. That, that's how small Tucson sector was. So all Tucson sector, 262 miles. Yeah. The two big stations, Douglas and Nogales, were like 40 agents each trying to cover the, the wow. big chunks of that. So. So I'm guessing you had the opportunity, especially as a border patrol agent, to do a lot of uh, interesting details and, and stuff that kind of helped you mature your career. Is that right? Oh, definitely. Any any uh, any ones that stick out to you? I mean, so the great part about Nogales is it's not just a line station; it also has a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and at first, we didn't have ATVs. Uh, that was very rare back then. I think they had a seized ATV that somebody, I think, sensors would take out, right? So we didn't have all the nice things. We didn't. The bike unit was just kind of starting. They had that downtown because that was important. Um, Nogales downtown was really where the center activity was, which right. you don't. A lot of people don't think back to the 90s. We were trying to take back Douglas, Nogales, El Paso. San, I mean, it was it was really about the town center. So uh, we focused a lot of our efforts there. Yeah. Was this under a, an operation name? So safeguard, safeguard. Uh, what transferred over from, you know, we had gatekeeper in San Diego. Right. We were transitioning over to safeguard being the next focus for the border patrol uh, with safeguards. So Nogales and Douglas quickly became the, the focus for the nation at the time. And then it would go over to uh, line watch in El Paso and then down well, line watch predicated all this. So line watch right. taught us how to do it. So I think that was later on, but El Paso, remember they started that, right. the hold the line, hold the line. That's and then right. it went to, um, gatekeeper, then safeguard, and then RGV. I mean, so we, we kind of, it's a weird progression of time, but it's one of those that Border Patrol history was being made and we didn't realize we were really positioning the, the future of the Border Patrol and things we were doing at that time. That's a fantastic frame. I mean, and, and, and for, for those listening now, I mean, that's that can play true, you know, moving throughout the last probably 30 years, this, the, the transitions of things that we've been asked to do, the different, uh, you know, you have the inflection point of 9-11. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, what some of the work you did at headquarters for, for operational requirements, uh, what, what those th types of things brought to the table. But I want to move on to, you're still at Nogales, and then you become a supervisor. Yes. So, Nogales, remember, so we went from 40 agents to now, quickly, we were the first class they'd had in a while. <clears throat> so... My class of 20, 25 people showed up. We almost doubled it. Yeah. But then classes were coming behind us one after another. Our sister class, 277, which former chief you know, Carla Provost was in, mm -hmm. a lot of you know her classmates, they went half to Douglas and half to Nogales as well. Yeah. So now when that class who's only a, a month behind us now shows up, now we truly have doubled the size of Nogales Station. So we're assigned four trainees to a, a journeyman. And there weren't enough vehicles, so we all were in one vehicle trying to go out there, and he would just drop us off different places, and you, you work on foot and bring aliens back to a certain place. So it, it was a different time and place and, and getting things done. But with that growth came the need for supervisors and building out the station where it went from a lot of times we didn't even have a supervisor on because there was only three for the whole station wow. to – you know, to what you see now today, 12, 15 soups per shift a lot of times because it's just so much going on. So, yeah, I was fortunate enough to qualify and, well, first get a senior agent job. Mm -hmm. And then two months after that, got that 11, then 11, 12 supervisor was able to hire into that. So pretty early in the career, like five years in, yeah. I was able to. 
So it's a good, it's a good kind of uh, context for for folks that are maybe newer agents who don't understand uh, maybe where where we've come from in terms of how you matured a career. Uh, back in the day, even even when I came in in 2000, uh, we we all kind of peaked at nines, GS nines, and then in order to essentially progress beyond that, even short of a promotion to supervisor or manager, however you want to characterize that, you had to compete for your GS-11. And that was a big deal. You had to accumulate all these uh, points for the things that, that you had done in your career, whether it be a detail or uh, something that, that you uh, uniquely brought to the table. You kind of aggregate this score, and then it made you competitive for a senior patrol agent. And you got a, you got your own badge. Uh, it was in, in, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was a badge of honor, yeah, right? Definitely. So to get it uh, was a, was a really big deal, and you got to be an eleven. And there's folks that, that did an entire career as GS nines and GS elevens, and you know we kind of have built uh, the maturation of that on, on the backs of those people, and, and you know we we appreciate them for having done that. So you had the benefit. You're 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 a senior patrol agent for two months, and then you go into a supervisory board patrol agent, which gets you your twelve. Right, um, and you do that for a bit, and then you become a field operations supervisor. Yeah, I was fortunate. So one of the details, you know, kind of doing different things, doing bike patrol unit as a supervisor, which is a great opportunity to have a little more freedom uh, of doing, um, you know, smaller group leadership, which, which is always interesting. And then going to do the public information officer detail at Tucson Sector, right. which. I'm not that guy, but it was somebody said, hey, this would be a good opportunity for you. And really, I viewed that as going to be the voice for the agents because I was very frustrated with the media, as a lot of us are nowadays, that our voice doesn't get heard. And when it does get, you only get one point of view. There's nobody really looking out for the agent, especially at that time, to say, to push back and go, well, did you get the rest of the story? Because yeah. um, there was so much activity, especially in Nogales itself and Douglas. Well, you know, shootings, rockings, assaults. I mean, it was a lot of conversation. A lot of the conversation went to where it looked like the agent was just the aggressor as opposed to defending themselves or doing it. So I, I made it, you know, I, t I took it as on my own to be that voice for the agent to the media. And at that time, we also had... You know, massive amounts of people coming through the West Desert. If everybody's not familiar with the West Desert, Tucson is always described as being the size of like Vermont, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Um, it's a huge area, but a lot of people were going out there, and the smugglers would leave them, and they would die. Right. So we were working really close to the Mexican consulates to try and you know stop people from going out their message campaign. But it became a world, it, a world discussion. So we were getting international media coming in and really setting up for them to ride out with our our board star, the search and rescue team, yeah. to really get that point of view. And it took a lot of effort. And it pretty much, as my wife will tell you, probably like the longest year, year and a half of my life. And as you know, Chief Lander, being in ops and all those and yeah. being deputies and chiefs, your life was 24 hours. Yeah. But dealing with the media, being the single point of contact for the largest, busiest sector in the nation. Right. With a flip phone, I didn't have I, I didn't have the benefit of having email in my hand, so I, I basically had to do it all by phone call, calling stations, doing all. But that but that prepared me that being out of my comfort zone prepared me for the next step of second line supervision, field operations supervisor. Yeah, so I want I want to talk about that, but I think it's you hit on a key point for me in that. Uh, over time, you know, border, border patrol going back to the badge of honor thing, we kind of. Uh, characterize doing more with less as kind of our motto. So we have honor first, everybody's heard that, but you know, as you know, we're talking about coming in in 1994, progressing through, you know, now we're talking maybe 2000-ish, 2002, uh, we weren't funded to the levels that we are funded to today. 
Um, and in order to achieve the mission or tell the story or whatever it may be, you kind of have to home grow some of these things like a comms division. So you you know, you were doing comms back before comms was cool, you know, uh, back before you had a podcast to, <laughs> to, to talk on. Um, so, you know, it, 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 the other thing you mentioned was, you know, trying to save the lives of migrants in the desert. So now we've kind of evolved kind of what, you, you know, the folks that have come before us have started this, you know, telling the story of the migrant who's missing and, and, and uh, saving their life. Now we have a missing migrant initiative, a missing migrant program that has all kinds of national attention that where we work, you know, directly, just as you described, right? We work directly with the government of Mexico, the government of Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, um, in order to uh, educate the folks on the, on the dangers and the perils of, of making such a, such a journey north. But at the same time, when they do choose to do that and they need help, uh, we can try and get them that help as well. So uh, I think, you know, credit to you for, for starting something like that in a homegrown fashion. But that was just the way you did it back then. You just had to do it. There, there was no training for yeah. this. It's just, and, and really being that uncifor, it was very uncomfortable. So under INS, we're still, we're not DHS yet. So INS regions really controlled everything we did. And yeah. it was, they weren't exactly comfortable with a, a uniformed agent being the point, the, the public information officer. Huh. But then the funny thing was, and Virginia Cox, I still remember her name, she went over <laughs> to work for ICE when we all changed over. But she came and she goes, she got much more comfortable with realizing that whenever you're the subject matter expert, no matter what it is, it doesn't have to be you know operations type stuff, but that comes across so much better for people to understand that you know what it means. So when I would talk about agents being rocked and having to return fire, and how I could I could talk to the media and saying, well, when this happens to us, right. this this is what we have to do, and really take from that first point of view. And that's what they weren't getting before when you had a third person, basically regurgitating that information from an SI, you know, a significant incident report or something like that, to taking it to us, right, and telling our story. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I really put forward to, to do on that one and but I will still plug for Chief Huffman on what he, he said he, he recognized he stole from an agent that you'll see a lot of what he's pushing that we're the most compassionate law enforcement agency in the world and we have the stats to prove it yeah. and it goes way back it's not anything new agents even when there's very few agents save people when they found them right and it's only that, that compassion of building Borstar and being able to save people that continues and continues to today. But yeah, that's it's true. The most compassionate law enforcement agency in the world and stats to prove it. Yeah, I've heard him say it. He's extremely passionate about it, and I don't think he's wrong either, right? I mean, we uh, we uh, make it our mission to you know, do our job at the same time. We are trying to ensure that people uh, make this journey and stay alive uh, while they're in our custody, for sure. Um, so... FOS. That's now second line. So first line being first line supervisor, SBPA. Now you're on an FOS before we had watch commanders. It's the old legacy FOS position. What were, what were some of the uh, highlights of that? I spoke with the, this class, 1177, the youngest person in his class. I was the youngest in my class, turned yeah. 22 at the academy. And um, so I, I spoke to him about the opportunities. But what that meant coming in at that time in the Border Patrol was such a massive amount of growth. And, and if you're, you know, shown you could do the capable right. and get hired for the job, the youngest supervisor, then being the youngest FOS. So now a lot of people that were my supervisors when I came in, now I'm supervising my <laughs> old supervisors and still having that young. But a lot of that came, I mean, so, so many great journeymen that I had in Nogales and such great experiences. It's your credibility of actually doing the job. So a lot of people, you know, there's a lot to that. 
your, your street credibility of being able to say, I was out there, I was doing it. So fortunately being in the same station yeah. really showed that, you know, I'm willing to do whatever, you know, needs to be done. And that really helped with being a second line supervisor with a very senior core of journeymen. Um, they were great and having their respect by showing them respect, right? Yeah. So it was a, a lot of great leadership. I learned leadership from journeymen mm -hmm. and from super, you know, supervisory head and super bad supervision. It happens, right? But you learn your lessons. Right. And um, so I think just those naturally, of course, Chief Aguilar was uh, Tucson sector chief at the time. Oh, yeah. And being the public information officer, I got to be one-on-one <laughs> -on -one and learn a lot from him. And, and if anybody doesn't learn from being around him on a regular basis and listening to, you know, how he goes through the thought process of, of doing things, that taught me a lot. Yeah. So again, another reason to go on those details, access to people you don't normally have nice. access to. Yeah. And um, so that changed a lot and that ability to be comfortable being that second line supervisor, making those decisions yeah. that, you know, now at this point, I'm, I'm eight years in, eight or nine years in, and yeah. I'm still not even 30, right? <laughs> so, um, and the biggest station, there's times we had well over 100 people in a muster. Yeah. And so you have 100 people that you're responsible for out in the field of the busiest you know, sector still at the time, the busiest sector, sure. busiest station, yep. um, there's so much going on. It's a lot of responsibility, but knowing that you've done this before, cause unfortunately yeah. <laughs> SIRs are very common in, in, in Nogales. So, um, you feel, you feel ready for the job when you've gone through a station that that's that busy for sure. and, and pretty much you hadn't seen too much that could happen. And so you're very comfortable with it. Well, you know, like me, um, and you know this very well. I also came in very young, at the, uh, and I, I can I can tell you, kind of touched on something uh, that's important to me as well as like, you kind of have to be humble because you don't know it all. You know, this is arguably most of what we knew, you know, in our adult lives, and uh, to to say that, you know, why wouldn't we seek the counsel of of a, a journeyman who's been there, done that, um, who, you know, fellow supervisors, uh, FOSs that were above us or, or DPACs. But uh, you have to be humble. You have to listen, take the good with the bad, and develop your own style. So I'm very, very sensitive to that and, um, and did a lot of the same things as well. Um, and the other piece that you, you kind of talked about, which I think is important for, for an aspiring leader as they grow in their careers, um, it's, you, you, you have to be exposed to folks that are doing the job now. Um, so uh, we're, we will be uh, discussing this over time as, as I walk through the academy uh, tenure. But um, some, of the, some of the greatest lessons I've learned, I made no decision on. I was, in fact, I was on the back bench watching, right? So don't, when, when you do get into positions where um, you have an opportunity to be exposed to, to either current leaders or up and coming leaders or however you want to characterize that. Don't take those opportunities for granted. It may be the most you know, menial uh, detail you think you're on, but you never know who you're watching. Yep. So it, I, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because uh, I give the folks that have come before me who I've, you know, uh, Chief Fisher, Chief Vitello, Chief Provost, Chief Luck, uh, Robert Harris, Chief Robert Harris. I mean, I, I was exposed to all these folks over time, uh, and, and I'm, I'm a better agent for it now by just sitting and listening, keeping my mouth shut, yep. <laughs> adding value where, you know, where it was necessary and, and required, but at the same time, taking that mental note of, um, hey, I really like the way he or she did this. You know what? I don't like the way he or she did this, and taking that note too. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's a great... Uh, leader development opportunity. It's funny you bring that up because people ask like, you know, the size of Nogales. And all that. I, I use a lot of them to understand how long, I mean, 1994 is a long time ago, but for them to really, as far as people that have been in the patrol, 
Ronald Colburn. Ron Colburn was a first-line soup acting PIC for Nogales when I got there. He was actually from the Sonoda Station. Wow. So having those types of mentors one-on-one with you yeah. in a small station that grew, I mean, one of, obviously one of our greatest agents ever and leaders, right? Um, just exudes leadership at all points and empathy and mentoring just happens, right? He doesn't yeah. try. It just happens. Right. And um, to have that kind of, and realizing and working with Chief Aguilar, like you said, you yeah. can start listing all these people that, wow, I can't imagine, I can't believe I was around these people right. just naturally. And I, you got to be around and see how they do things. So it almost seems natural for them, but I think if you ask them, it's because they grew the same way that, and then like Chief Huffman, you talk about him, he can go back and start naming people. I mean, obviously Chief Huffman's a great storyteller, but um, the people that inspired him and what he learned from, because we start thinking, oh, these people are just naturally this great leader that we, but then they talk about, no, I learned from this. Right. And so it's it's those experiences that we have to really, and, and I like that you said, you, you got to look at that moment right now and understand you're learning yeah. whether you think you're not just sitting on the back bench, you're not just, um, a fly on the wall in a conference room of something you know important going on. You're part of it, and you're learning whether you like it or not. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you take the good and the bad and, and learn from both of those. But that was a good point you brought up. A lot of the great border patrol leaders that we've had, and when you talk to them, they talk about the former great border patrol sure. leaders, right? But it's it's been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to be around those people. Right. Um, I, I think that's uh, obviously a, a great point. Um, but all good things must come to an end. So you love no gallus, right? Uh, you obviously spent, I'm going to go with about 10 years, more or less, more or less. In, in the Tucson sector. And then you transfer to uh, Erie Station in Pennsylvania as a supervisory border patrol agent. We have a border patrol agent in Erie, Pennsylvania. Tell <laughs> me about that. That's what the people in Erie, Pennsylvania <laughs> said as well. So um, Erie, Pennsylvania was, the area was part of Buffalo sector. Mm-hmm. It is part of Buffalo sector, but okay. it was patrolled by part of the Buffalo station, which it's not an, it's not an easy drive on regular weather. It's out of the way. And then during the winter, you're not going to want to do that through the, the I-90. <laughs> no. Erie gets 130 inches of snow a year. Right. So there, there's a reason why you're not commuting back and forth through there. So my wife, Kathy, and I, we had the opportunity to go to the northern border. She's from upstate New York. Good change. We've been in the desert for you know a while. Yeah. Uh, we've been married for a while. We had our daughter, Brooke. And um, like, hey, here's time for a change. And everybody I talked to, like, hey, the northern border has, a, you know, I was interested in seeing what the northern border had to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I love Nogales. I always will love Nogales. Yeah. But there's always that time. And I remember asking Rob Vitello, another one of our great leaders, right, when I was uh, FOS, like, when do you know when it's time? So he had transferred to headquarters. And I said, when do you know when it's time to go? He goes, you'll just know. It'll be things will be in the right place and just be prepared to make that decision when it comes up. So yeah. to, to go to that, it was an opportunity. So we got to go to Erie, Pennsylvania, and open up the station. So it was a brand new station. To be able to open up a station in an area that didn't have a lot of Border Patrol presence, to really start working with the community and the local law enforcement, what we can do for them, what they can do for us, and working together. What a great experience. And it's a great little town. If you've never been up there, it's, I mean, it's it's nice. Yeah. Awesome. If you enjoy winter, you got to make sure you enjoy, <laughs> uh, have a good snow thrower and a back for shoveling. So you do that for about three years, right? And then uh, this is where you then transition up to Washington, D.C. as an assistant chief overseeing the U.S. Border Patrol uh, Operational Requirements Branch, which at the time, uh, if you think about it contextually, 2007 starts to become a big deal. We start doing what? Right. So the 
the funny thing is that branch didn't really exist. Um, and we didn't really talk about gathering requirements in the board patrol. We all talked about what we needed, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we didn't formalize that process. But during that time, and, and when I was assigned up there, very fortunate for me, there was an agent detailed up from San Diego sector, Brian Martin. Yeah. Um, so who knew tactical infrastructure? Yeah. And as and so I'm minding my own business there. Because when you get to headquarters, you don't always have a job right out the gate. You have work to do, but you don't have a job necessarily. Like this is your thing to do. And they came to me and said, hey, we had our liaison for SBI Net at the time, the Secure Border Initiative. Um, he's transferring out we need you to do it. I'm like, all right, I can do it. I kind of heard that it was going on, but I didn't think much about it. So I thought it was more of a technology side, which it was. It was really focused on trying to get to, you know, better camera systems and a smarter system of technology along the border. But then at the same time, there was the tactical infrastructure side of it. And um, the Secure Border um, Fencing Act of 2006 had been passed, and SBI had been tasked with building the border fence. And... um, but they were doing it outside of the border patrol. It was one of those things that they took it on and righteously, you know, trying to do what was be done. And they thought they had what they needed to be done, but it wasn't going well because, and I, and I say all that because they needed the requirements and the requirements come from the field and the agents out in the field go, why do you, what do you need for a barrier along Hmm. the border? you know, to stop drive through. We'd built some of that in different places, you know, the backs of some really great agents sure. taking, you know, Vietnam landing mat and creating wall. And we also had a lot of great work from the military to come in and, and build some wall for us, if you want to call it, you have landing mat. But then after using that, we saw it did some good things for us and it held us back some ways. So um, that's when we really started gathering requirements because we needed to be able to say why it needs to be 18 foot tall at the time and why there needs to be a four inch gap in the middle and why it needs to be buried so many feet down in the ground, why it needs to be anchored this way. It was all from agents saying, these are how it gets defeated and we need to be able to stop this or slow this down, whether it be drive-throughs or people or drugs, whatever it may be, or tunneling underneath the fences. So all those are requirements that we, we, we brought forward and I want to say we professionalized it, right? So we could then translate that to, because during that time, um, Chief Martin and I, he retired, you know, recently is after the director of chief is bad. Um, we really started formalizing that and he's really the brains behind the, the formalizing the tactical infrastructure and requirements. My job was to go out there and sell it. Right. What do you mean that you, you know, it needs to be this. And so I would deal with the politicians and I would deal with the local landowners and really our stakeholders is explaining to them why it needs to be this way. So another great experience, I didn't have tactical infrastructure experience constructing it, working on it. I worked around it in Nogales, but I didn't know anything about it. It was one of those, here's an opportunity, took it, right? And like I said, fortunately, Brian Martin was there to, to kind of, as a team, we just formed a team and it kind of built from there. Yeah. So the ORMD, the Operational Requirements Management Branch back then, now it's a division, um, really grew from the need of the field. Right. which it really should be on everything, right? But how do we represent the field at headquarters to other people to provide what they need back on there? So we, we, we continue to, and I do that now. So it all comes back to requirements. What is the person that's oh, going yeah. to use this? What do they need? You have to start there over and over and yeah. over because so many people want to start with what they believe is the answer and then it, you know have the end user adapt to their vision. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. So. You and I have had uh, many conversations uh, in my office, your office, uh, the lunchroom, wherever it may be between, uh, you know, when you were in, in SPAD and, and I'm in uh, law enforcement operations about, you know, great, Ryan, we can get you this, but I need 
first of all, prioritization, what are the true requirements, my team can help you, uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, to say that it's a thing now is an understatement. <laughs> so thanks to you guys for that. But again, going back, <clears throat> this is another example where you take on a role that was unfamiliar to you, so it broadened you, it stretched you, uh, and you were willing to take it. And while at the same time, you uh, take the opportunity to learn from a leader who's gone before us to you know, soak up in the knowledge. And then uh, eventually it's gonna play out to where you know, you're running a pretty large organization in CBP and we'll get there. <clears throat> but next, you from, from operations requirements branch that wasn't a branch, that's now a division, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you, uh, you transition over into, uh, I guess, Liad at the time yeah. or whatever it may have been called. Law enforcement operations. Yeah. Law enforcement operations. Your old home, yes. That's right, that's the one. Uh, and you become uh, an associate chief. Now you're looking at a GS-15 over the San Diego, California corridor. There's all the California corridor. So the, the then they did the corridor of El Centro and San which I really hadn't been, it was, again, unfamiliar to me because I had not been in San Diego. Yeah. I'd been there, but I had not been there. Yeah. Um, spent much time there or operated there. And it was one of those. So again, unfamiliar. But you rely on assistant chiefs that were really subject matter experts working back with the field. Yeah. Um, but that was short-lived. Um, where I thought, so I got that promotion. So Kathy and I was like, okay, so we're probably going to be another two or three years here in in um, Washington because I took a promotion. Right. I need to do, you know, make sure I, I give them what they they want out of you know promoting somebody up to there. Right. And that that was short lived, like six months. <laughs> so the uh, the interesting part here is. Uh, for those again, those folks who are listening who think that they might want to go to headquarters, um, this is this is a time in your career where you start becoming a little more general. So you know maybe you're you know you're an agent in the El Paso sector and you're uh, you know you've been in the comm shop for the last four or five years and and you want to uh, go to headquarters and comms. Well, guess what? The likelihood of that's not very good. So you may be thrust into a requirements branch in SPAD. You may be thrust into uh, agent support and, and mission readiness. You may be thrust into uh, operations and and a lot of that's by design. If I you know there are some jobs uh, at headquarters where it's really good to have some subject matter expertise to build on, but at the same time, I'm trying to develop, you know, the 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 agent that's Ryan Scudder, you know. So to to say that you know, hey, he's really good at comms. Let's put him in comms. It's not best for for the agent. And to your point on that, I tell when people say they're going to headquarters, yeah. I tell them go don't go straight to operations. You know operations. Mm-hmm. And operations is obviously the most important thing that we do because that's what the field does out right. there. But stretch yourself. You have this opportunity to be in Washington, D.C., where it's so much more than just what we do out in the field, right? It's how we service the field. How does the field get what they need? You know, we'll talk about more of that later, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, but I tell people, don't, don't go into that right away. You, you have experience in that. Take that experience into something else that you're not familiar with, the mission support side. How do we hire people? How do we recruit people? All those programs that mean the world to us, go be a part of that right. and, and help the Border Patrol grow that way or help CBP grow that way. You can always get back into operations because we always need people in operations. Absolutely. And, and the idea is to, to take your operational expertise and take it to other places right. for them to learn your operational expertise. So I'm, I'm glad you said that it's, it's, you might just be thrust into it, but you might need to seek it out because you can get into a complacency comfort zone and and what have you really learned at the end of the day? I, you may not you may not believe this actually, but uh, when people ask me the same thing, I literally say the same thing. Yeah. Like where, where should I go? I want to be an ops. No, you don't. <laughs> you may want to be an ops one day, and that and that's great. 
But at the same time, if you really want to expand your knowledge base and do something outside your comfort zone, I mean, look, it's bad. You deal with labor. You deal with, the, you just develop the strategy for the entire U.S. Border Patrol. Who gets to say that they were, they get to help author uh, the chief's vision for what the next strategy for the, that's gonna guide our organization over the next, say, three to five to seven years, um, that they were get to be a part of that. Uh, you know, agent support, resiliency, which is now really key in your, in your new role, uh, doing something that's noble and righteous and right uh, for the health uh, physically, mentally, spiritually of our workforce is something uh, that's worth doing. Yeah. The right? PT Fit program, they're, they're really pushing to, yeah. to expand that, and that's really through SPAT. People don't realize that those things are out there, and somebody has to do them. Right. They used to call it like the junk drawer of things, right? Because we don't know where to put it, so put yeah. it in SPAT or put it in mission support. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, so we have people from the field working on how do we expand PT Fit, the TAC kit. How do we get that out oh, there? Yeah. We have all the our smart, you know, I call them nerds in green that are that are running that stuff. That it's amazing to listen to them talk through and how that tack phone yeah. that we're trying to get in the hand of every single agent right. that that's the future, right? And so they get to they're, they're excited like how do we make this even better and and give the agent a better you know situational awareness and just make the agent give them tools to make them be themselves be the better agent and it's exciting. Oh, I mean, it's one of those it's things. A great that, time to be headquarters. When you're at headquarters. You get to do things for the field and see the field be able to to utilize them and go with it. And a lot of people think that it's all about being at it. No, it's really about being able to give the field things that they need and finding out what they want. It's an exciting time. Yeah. It was before and it yeah. is again. It's always fighting for the agent and the, the support staff out in the field. Yeah. What's more righteous than that, right? So. I tell you, what, I think I think you you captured it best right there. Was going to headquarters is about giving back to the field. So if, you know, if you weren't happy with something previously, like hey fine they make that your mission to go up and make it better for the next guy who has to operate that tack phone or whatever it might be you know um, anything you can think of you can probably help you know uh, lead at the headquarters division or at the headquarters uh, assignment so definitely uh, could not agree with you more i think it's very well put so short-lived as an associate chief and now we're going down into the patrol agent in charge uh, which arguably, uh, you know, going back to some of those chiefs we talked to, is kind of the pinnacle of a career. It was where I wanted to be. I was, I was completely excited, and um, yeah. and I'd spoken with like Chief Vitello, yeah. you know, he'd been in different places, and I and I told when people ask, you need to know what you want to do, and I said <laughs> I really want the opportunity one day right. to be a patrol agent in charge. I mean, because I was really I was excited about leading a station and the opportunities of being able to do some of those things, and Chief Vitello was, um, it was in RGV already and, and saw an opportunity for me to go down to Westlaco mm -hmm. and, and take over that station. Very interesting time in RGV at that, you know, 2010, 2011 timeframe. But yeah, Chief Vitello, but that, that's important to be able to talk to your mentors, right? And when telling people, what's your plan, right? Yeah. If you don't have a plan, it's, it's hard for them to help you if they don't know what you want, right? right. So, um, but again, working with those, the people at that level opens up doors for you. Right. Um, so I think I think that's a, that's another great frame. You're you're going, uh, you know. First of all, you you lean. You've obviously leaned on mentors over your career, and I don't I don't mean that in so far as they've you know artificially given you something. It's that you're will you've been willing to do the work and take the advice of what they have to say, even maybe sometimes if it's not what you wanted to hear. Uh, and like, hey, you know what? I, I, need, I do need to go to headquarters. That is something that's a gap on my resume. It's important that I go go there. You know, former chief so-and-so said I need I, that's probably my next step to be a well-rounded patrol agent in charge. I have that capability and that, that promise in me, but 
to do that most effectively, maybe that tour headquarters is right. So um, again, going back to humility, right? So there's that. Um, but you're in you're in Westlaco. This is the Rio Grande Valley sector, uh, which is you know quite large. It's not your only stint in the Rio Grande Valley sector, and it's where our paths start to first meet. But uh, you're you're down there when when the the traffic patterns of migrants coming across the border began to shift from not only Arizona because oh by the way you were there when it was the height of <laughs> yeah. the you know the the, the flow, flow right. uh, across the border was was Arizona that's all we heard that's all you heard about when I came in the patrol it was like Arizona 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 it's just you know a nightmare out there kind of thing um, and then in 2011 we start to shift down south it starts to become um, the, the hot spot for the flow of not only uh, what we would characterize as, you know, Mexican male nationals that would come across the border that we can easily apply um, a pathway to a processing disposition to. The Border Patrol was designed to handle adult males. There you go. With our sales system, with our disposition system, with prosecutions or, you know, returning people. It was designed because that's all we traditionally had. Very, right. You know, it was the predominant amount. And um, yeah, during that time in, in Rio Grande Valley, you started to see that shift. And they had started to sound the alarm bells. It wasn't just when I got oh, there. Yeah. I think back to 2008, they're like, we're seeing a demographic change that we're not comfortable with, right. that it was really getting harder to handle those. So they were getting those fluctuations. So again, I think a lot of the people that were hearing those alarm bells were like, it'll pass. This too shall pass. Yeah. And then it continued in 2010, getting worse. 2011, getting worse. Yeah. Sending that up. And I think... It's not that it caught people off guard, but we had been so long being told to focus on Arizona because right. Tucson sector became the bellwether for how the entire border was doing. If they caught a lot or were efficient, however you want to, you know, had a, a high efficiency rate, the whole border was doing good. So everybody focused and wanted to go on tours to Tucson <laughs> um, to see everything that had been done. Yeah. And RGV was sounding the alarm, rightfully so. Um, we think we got a problem over here yeah. and it was becoming that change of demographic to OTMs other than other than Mexicans and children yeah and then you started seeing all the you know we don't have to get all the everybody knows the the stories of you know Fort Brown station is basically just a daycare center because right. there's so many unaccompanied children and this is that, in 2012 this, right this is in right. 2012 people are really thinking we're talking about that this is this has been building for a decade Right. Uh, over a decade, and it's continually getting, you know, getting harder and harder to do because the numbers, the smugglers saw how they could beat the system, right. and the system is not designed to handle children, especially unaccompanied children. Never has been. The federal system, even if you're being prosecuted by the the FBI or DEA or anybody, there's not a pathway for children in a federal detention system, right. really. And it's only been developed recently because of all the issues that we have working with HHS, Health and Human Services. But they saw that vulnerability and they exploited it over and over and over and kept doing more and more. Mm -hmm. And it was the inability of the government to adapt to, and I won't say the border, I'll say the government because it's bigger than the Border Patrol. Right. This, this is truly uh, a government-wide issue, right? Because it affected everybody, how the, the, the changes and flows. And the government just doesn't move well, doesn't pivot on, on that type of thing. So you're seeing a lot of pivot lately in the past, you know, four plus years, right. but not enough. And, and there's only so much that can be done with, you know, without serious law changes, right? right. So I think it's a good point. Like no matter, 
in a completely apolitical fashion, no matter what uh, side of an aisle you politically kind of fall on personally, this is where, as an organization, we start really seeing uh, the exploitation of a human being, mm-hmm. right? For monetary On gain, a grand scale. On a grand scale. So we kind of, and we, we start to kind of memorialize that. We start to kind of talk about it in those types of frames. We start to, to kind of look at... Uh, uh, delivering some kind of consequence, not necessarily to the migrant that's coming across the border. We still have those traditional pathways, but then we start looking about how to impact the transnational criminal organizations uh, that that are associated with exploiting these human beings. This is all, I think Arizona kind of started a little bit, then you kind of transitioned down into South Texas uh, with the former Chief Harris that we talked about in the, in the creation of the, of the South Texas campaign that eventually comes uh, becomes the Joint Task Force West that was based out of San Antonio, working working with uh, DHS at the time. But you, you talk about the exploitation of human beings, um, and then at the same time, they're you know using that exploitation to then also monetarily benefit from uh, the smuggling of other commodities, you know, g- guns, money, drugs. God only knows what else was out there at the time, even now. Um, but and then you start to take a toll on the workforce. Right. So we're sounding the alarm. The workforce strength is not where it should be in South Texas. You start to get this deluge of, of migrants coming across the border. At the same time, you've got these other threats that are that are also coming across the border. Um, so they ask you to, to go from West Laco Station over to the Rio Grande City Border Patrol Station. Yeah, the R- RGC. What a, what a great place to, yeah. to, to work out of agents. I mean, so I always told people, no matter what, agents love their job. Right. Yeah. But Rio Grande City was especially... They really, really loved their mm-hmm. job because of the, the type of work they got to do in Star County yep. and just the wide range of it. Um, a lot of work to be done, and they loved it. And they and really being at that, that scene between Laredo and Rio Grande City, there was a lot of traffic in the middle that the smugglers would push through yeah. because it was a seam, and it was hard to, hard to get to all the time. There was plenty to happen before you ever got far enough to the scene. So yeah. they, the agents loved it. They, they uh, what a great place to be a patrol which you know. Yes. Because after we, Chief Owens took it after I did it, and then you, yeah. you were after that, It's and then Chief Aguilar had yeah. it before I did. Yeah. Um, Rio Grande City has a, a lot of good roots behind it for a lot of people getting yeah. to really enjoy being a leader yeah. uh, of a station, and I think Rio Grande City really epitomizes that. I'll tell you what, I, I couldn't say that more. So you got you know former Chief Aguilar who was – uh, ascended to the you know the highest levels of, of CBP as well. Uh, you, you know you follow him not successionally, but after and, and just in, in the lineage, uh, highest levels of CBP. Then you got Chief Owens, who's now on his second command in the Del Rio sec- se- sector, which uh, arguably might be one of the if not the busiest sectors in the entire country. And uh, you know following lastly in that in that line, um, you got me, and I'm you know assuming my first command behind, you know Jason. So. Uh, it, it's, it's a super cool history and, 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 a, and a cool story to tell. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of a double-edged sword for the workforce, right? So the, if, if you're talking about, you know, the, the, the trajectory that some of us have enjoyed uh, with, you know, between you, uh, Jason, and I, um, you don't get to spend a ton of time there. And that's, and that's good because you're super aggressive and, and you're, you're trying out new things and you're learning. But it's also bad because you're super aggressive, you're trying out new things and you're learning. <laughs> and the workforce gets the tired work, of the, right. the change. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, you got to so, be very aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. And this will play in again to, to what you're doing now over time. But uh, the resilience of the workforce and, and you know, you kind of mentioned it, you, you really can't uh, – 
you can't BS a, a Border Patrol agent in Rio Grande City. So, yep. you, you know. And, that, and it was a good time. It was also a time when we were losing AUO. Oh, going through all those yes. times as we, were, as we were going through working towards BEPRA. So it was all, you know, having that open conversation with them, going into the musters and just having, guys, I know as little as you do. And mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of working through this together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just because we're all agents at the end of the day, we're all under the same pay. So, um, so on top of all the increased traffic and all the work, yeah. and then you get the stress of the budget just dropping out from underneath the entire government, right? So, and specifically, I mean, at that time, I don't think Rio Grande Valley could even pay the amount the fuel. The, the fuel. It was a fuel. So, yeah. I mean, it, it was so add everything on top of that, and the AUO. Um, talk about agents starting to lose their twenty five percent pay. I mean, it, what a hard time to be an agent. Yeah. And then a hard time to be a leader and really working through that, like, okay, all these things we want you to do, uh, we don't have any money to do it. Yeah. And we may have to cut a lot of pay. Um, it's, yeah. uh, if that doesn't set you up for, you know, really thinking how you, <laughs> you lead from the front yeah. or leading, you know, it, in Rio Grande City, they're, they're very vocal, like you said, they, yeah. uh, which is good in a way because then you know exactly what they're thinking. Absolutely. There's no, there's nothing hidden between the two of you. Yeah. So it, it actually leads uh, perfectly in, into my next point. From, so from Rio Grande City, you go out to the San Diego sector as a division chief. Uh, you get hired on as a division chief. But I want to talk a little bit about that. Would, can you weave in kind of uh, how you're prepared? How, how, how are you more prepared to be the division chief in a place like San Diego, which you've never been to at this point? Right. So you're kind of literally circling the country almost, you know, and you're winding up in, you know, of all places, San Diego. But you've got all these positions that you've held leading in, in, in positions where, you know, Arizona, it's a it's, it's a tough time. You learn how to do comms, you learn how to do requirements. You're leading through a loss of, uh, you know, pay for agents plus pay for fuel. Uh, so how does that prepare you to go out and be a division chief? So, yeah, so you got to remember that division chief job didn't exist before I got the RGV. It was just starting. Yep. So, JRV Real was the first division chief of ops out there. And, you know, luckily he's just a naturally, <laughs> you know, brings people together, yep. right? And, and doing things. And division chief of ops is not an easy job. No. So, if you've ever tried to lead anybody, you know, leading people is great until you add in people. <laughs> and, then, and then when you add in people, but then now think about division chief of ops. You're leading type A personalities that were hired to be patrol agents in charge right. of their stations to be the leaders of their station. And I, and I truly agree with, you know, the leaders in a sector are the PICs and the chiefs, right? They're really setting the vision and doing all those. So now you got this division chief of ops who's kind of, um, and not kind of, but it's really on the hook to make sure that the chief's vision is being implemented out in the stations, right. where it used to be underneath, you know, the assistant chiefs. And then, of course, the deputies love the division chief ops. Now the deputies don't have to deal with all that. That's why you have a division chief ops, right. right, to kind of filter out all the operational issues that are going with that. So JR helped a lot kind of seeing how that, and being in Rio Grande Valley, which is the busiest sector, and seeing how the PICs kind of, you know, pushed back on division chief of ops and different, you know, the where the push and pull factors were and things like that. So I was able to kind of watch from the side in the mix, right, as a patrol agent in charge. And I, and I, I stepped, stepped in a little bit for JR to, right. you know, for like a, a week here and there. But really seeing how that position was evolving. And um, so when I went to San Diego as division chief of ops, again, quite a few PICs. It's, it's one thing to be a division chief of ops over four PICs. Another thing to have nine plus, you know, RGV, there was a bunch, JR had his hands full. I'm going to San Diego now, a very senior core of PICs that have been in San Diego. They're, they're truly the SMEs of how 
yeah. San Diego sector works, right? When you've been in the, those, you know, your entire career, most mm-hmm. of those PICs have been, they truly are the subject matter experts. So, but I made it very clear going into, I'm not here to first line supervise you. Right. You're chosen to run your station. You need to run your station. I'm just here to make sure the chief and the deputy translating down to what you need and, and then back up what you need to them. Yeah. I said, my job is just doing that. If you want me to first line supervise you, I will, <laughs> but I don't want to, yeah. especially not with 12 of you. Yeah. I, I don't want to do that. And, and so really kind of setting that up front, being honest with them, like, I'm not here to tell you how to run your station. Right. If I did, if I did, why do I need you? Yeah. So really setting that up front kind of helped set the tone for, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to tell you how to do it, right. but we have to work together because the chief expects us to be getting this stuff done. Yeah. So I think that kind of helps set the tone. And that's what, I mean, it, we're learning from different leaders. Like, I don't, I'm not, if I did your job for you, you don't need to be there. And I want you to be there. You're the SME, you know more than I do. Yeah. So why would I even try to do your job? That's that's a great point. So, um, brought a couple of good points. If you look at the, uh, you know, we've talked to think about org structure of headquarters, uh, org structures of stations. But in terms of an org structure of a sector, uh, generally speaking, depending it varies in sizes, depending if you're northern coastal border against maybe a southwest border sector. But you got a chief patrol agent. You have a deputy chief patrol agent. And uh, you'll have two uh, division chiefs, one for operations, and that generally is, you know, for lack of a better word, a first-line supervisor to the PICs, but more like a facilitator for the right. vision of the chief. So your your responsibility was managing and leading those patrol agents in charge of each of those stations. And on the other side of the house, you'd have a division chief of uh, operational programs who would basically anything else you can think of that doesn't involve being a PAIC um, or being having a title of PIC would then fall under uh, programs, uh, ops programs. That's everything from uh, resiliency to horse patrol to, um, you know, whatever else you can think of, a processing today, right? Those big yeah. processing centers that falls under the programs guy or, or person, I should say. Um, so it helps you, you know, become a, you know, your exposure to, to, you know, kind of wicked problems over time and good leaders over time prepares you for your next role as division chief to then you, where you go out and you slide over a sector. Now you're making another turn yeah. going over to the El Centro sector as, as I mentioned before, the deputy chief patrol agent. How was that? Yeah, and it was really, so going over there when you have a, as you know, we have super capable spouse, mm-hmm. a wife mm-hmm. that is, um, really um, moving up and, and right. she had the opportunity to become a patrol agent in charge of the Imperial Beach Station in San Diego. Right. Um, I'm kind of in the way as a <laughs> chief of operations, but but it, not in the way in that I'm holding up. She's they, they she's has the ability to be promoted to a patrol agent in charge. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, I've kind of done the division chief thing. I, I'd like to see what other opportunities are out there. And fortunately, the opportunity for deputy of El Centro came up and I interviewed and, and, and got that and worked for Chief Scott as a, the El Centro chief out there. But it worked out well, I mean, because then my wife could continue to flourish and do her leadership work in San Diego and I could be in El Centro. Because um, we, we talked about this earlier today, kind of jokingly, that a lot of people think the, the spouses, like, oh, our life's just so easy. Um, it, it's never easy, but it even gets, it's a strange difficulty as you move up yeah. and you can't be each other's bosses and it gets, right. and, and, and you're never in each other's way, but you're constantly trying to make sure that you're appropriately 
you know, yeah. adjusting for where your spouse needs to be, you know, and what they want to do. And she really wanted to be a patrol agent in charge. And honestly, I was really, the opportunity to be a deputy of a sector really intrigued me. I, I yeah. love the, the deputy type role. And so it was just a great opportunity at a great time that we didn't have to move. And I could still live with my wife yeah. <laughs> and just commute over to El Centro from where yeah, we I mean, San Diego. That, that deputy job, I can, I can tell you right now, is uh, invaluable. I get to spend a little time with, uh, with Chief Chavez in El Paso. And I tell you what, man, I learned literally, you know, 10 things a day and, and 14 things on Sunday. Uh, just being there the short time that I was there. And I, so I, I thank her for the opportunity, but uh, giving me, getting, getting to spend time in that kind of I chair. was her deputy for a little while, too. Uh, that's right. Now, so. That's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, so our, you know, it, it also kind of speaks to the, our, our paths cross. Yeah. You know, like the, when you start to ascend uh, to these positions, it narrows <laughs> big yeah. time, right? So it, you have to kind of... Uh, um, you have you're, to learn to work with people. Your peer mentors. That's right. Or, you, know, you, yeah. you, you need to rely on them even more, but there gets to be fewer and fewer as you get up there. And, right. and luckily, we, we got a bunch of great peer mentors right. to work with. Yeah. So at the same time, while you're in El Centro, you um, attend and graduate the Department of Homeland Security uh, SES Candidate Development School. Is that right? Career, yeah, career development, CDP. CDP, SCS, CDP, <laughs> uh, which uh, Jason had mentioned uh, on his podcast that he was a graduate of. Uh, I was also a graduate of that. I benefited from that program. Uh, you're you're uh, a graduate as well. By the way, going back to the uh, spouse issue on, on the podcast that Jason and I did, uh, I, I made the, the comment, and I still believe this, that anybody uh, that knows uh, the two of us, uh, would prefer my wife over me anyway. Oh, no, no, you know. Everybody, people hire me. I think it's just so they can get my wife there and I'm just the baggage that goes along. And, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So we, we, uh, we both live in that boat and, uh, happy that we do. Um, so great, great spouses. Um, so you, you the one, what I want to talk about as far as the SSCDP is you do an interesting assignment as a part of this developmental assignment that that's required. So you go through this 12 months worth of uh, academic classes, about eight months of academic classes uh, put on by the key university of American university, the key institute in American university. Uh, and then the back half somewhere along there, the last four months or so in theory, you're supposed to spend in what they call a developmental assignment or what we call it as kind of a DA and that you're, you're, you're asked to go do something other than your, perform in a, in a position then you're from your home organization so you couldn't go be a border patrol agent in another sector that was uh an, in an acting you know ses capacity or even ofo or air and marine for example they wanted you to go do something completely different as a true developmental assignment there's a lot of reasons for that and we can get into that if you want but i'm more interested in your particular assignment it says here you got to be the advisor that's a counselor, the, yeah. That's counselor right, yeah. to the, for the Secretary of Homeland Security for 11 months. For Secretary so. Nielsen. So it was interesting enough. So I want to go back just one step, yeah. talking about our peer mentors. Mm -hmm. So Chief Owens had gone through it before I did. So I kind of asked him, hey, what to expect? I mean, yep. just like we would with anybody else. That mentoring happens no matter what level you're at, right? Because we're always trying to help each other out and kind of get a, a feel for it. And they, they do recommend getting somebody from a previous class to mentor. But I just did that naturally because I knew Jason had done it. And I've always reached out to him. I respect his opinion and sure. his insight on that kind of stuff because he's very thoughtful when it comes to um, especially educational opportunities and those types of things. But then also, so going through that class at the same time, Brian Martin and I went through it <laughs> at the same time. So, and, and he was um, 
and he was like a little different stage of where he was going through. So he had already kind of set up his his DA. I think he was doing it through CISA, what's now CISA. Right. Um, and it, but I hadn't really looked at you know. So they give you like then they give you a little book of things to go through, and I'm looking through, and I'm like, is that really counselor for the secretary? <laughs> and so people were like calling, you know, and Brian he calls it. You know, Chief Martin will call it. And he's like, that's the granddaddy one right there. And I kind of just kind of looked over and kind of went on. But then as I started thinking about it, I'm like, everybody else has representation at DHS. And at the time, it was the NAC, Nebraska Avenue Complex. I said, but CBP doesn't have anybody sitting at the table. Coast Guard does. Um, Secret Service does. They're there all the time, right? All our, all the other entities in, in DHS are sitting there all the time. And then Commissioner McAleen, who's a great representative, but that's a lot of work to be the CBP commissioner and to be the rep trying to, you know, keep DHS up with everything CBP is involved in, right? It's an amazing amount of work. And I thought if I could do something and set my goals, not just getting through my uh, my developmental assignment, but get CBP a seat at that table as a counselor to have a voice um, for the, the busiest component of all DHS. Uh, it's got to take up more of the secretary's time than anybody, I'm sure. To be able to set that up, I figured that was more of a goal for me than just getting through my de developmental assignment. Sure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that, that three-month, is it three or four-month? Four yeah. Le 11 months later, um, fortunately, I was able to find another one of our, our peers that, you know, uh, um, of our future leaders like, like you. Um, I got Tony Barker into yeah. taking that over for me for, yeah. for his work. But it, what a great, I mean, the ability to sit there with a, a sitting secretary of DHS, yeah. travel with her, and really go through the thought processes of what we're going on, of all of DHS, right? Mm -hmm. So I was representing CBP, not the Border Patrol. That was actually one of Commissioner McLean's questions. Like when he kind of gave me a little mini interview, he's like, so what are you going to wear every day, you know, <laughs> as, I, as I'm in a uniform? And um, I said, well, obviously a suit, sir. I'm representing CBP, not mm -hmm. just the Border Patrol. He's like, that right answer yeah <laughs> no no when you're being interviewed right? for sure <laughs> I, and, and we you and i talked about this a little bit earlier um you know obviously you know we're talking about ascension into or promotion into scs senior executive uh, service uh, and the in and, and the process that it takes to get there so it's a culmination of your career over time and the experiences that we've talked about throughout this podcast that got you to where you were at but then at the same time you have the capability you have the vision to understand that you're going to go into this developmental stretch assignment and you're going to represent the entire cbp right so you're not looking at it through a soda straw you're looking at it through the whole you know the whole uh, wide aperture of the entire organization and, and understanding that it, it takes a lot to to fully represent our entire workforce and their mission. Uh, and and, and, and you, you have to become a generalist, right? That's kind of what a, a GO, an SES, however you want to characterize that, you're really starting to broaden that and, and understand that requirement of, of what, it, you know, what it's going to eventually lead into. Um, and we can get into that next so <laughs> you go from you go from a deputy. i feel like i can't hold a job we, we yeah. spend a lot of time going through all my jobs it's it's interesting i mean there, there's going to be some compression you know and, and all of us have done jobs where maybe we uh, spent a little too much time doing and jobs where we may have not spent enough time doing that's just the nature when you start there's just not enough years in the career we're not we're not uh align with say the military where they have a very structured program where you're like every two years you're on the move and you you know if you're promotion eligible you get promoted if you're not then you're out you right. know so we aren't like that it's really it really comes down to uh kind of the the individual are you know talking about kathy and you have a, you have a wife you have brooke you have older children as well 
am I at a spot where I can move? Is it the right thing for my family? I'm not forced to do it, right? I, I, I'm generally intrigued by the deputy chief patrol agent of El Centro. It's something I want to take on. Oh, by the way, it actually works out. So um, there, there's this fine line, and, and, and I, I'd love the frame you used, it, and I'll go back to it with Chief Vitello. You just know when you know, right? There's there's literally like no putting uh, a definition or a timeline I can't on it. can't tell how many times people ask me, like, where do you want to be next? I'm like, I don't know. I, don't ha I never planned that out. Yeah. I, I was always concerned when people say, I'm going to be here in five years. Right. How do you know that's where you're going to be in five years? Right. Because then you're, you, are you skipping opportunities that right. because you, you already predetermined where you need to be? Right. You know, so I just never, I mean, but throughout my career, people ask, where are you going next? I don't know. I never planned on going to RGVs, the PIC of Wessico. Right. I mean, I've been to RGV a lot with the security. I, I didn't, you know, San Diego, we started trying to look for certain places when Brooke was getting into high school. That was, you know, it would be funny to bring that yeah. up. It was intentional to right. stay there while she went to high school, so she went in one place. Mm -hmm. We felt we owed that to our daughter after all the moves we had done. You know, so we stayed yeah. in, in San Diego and then, you know, it, you have a plan, right? I'm not saying I never have a plan, but I also don't, I can't tell you where I was going to end up. Yeah. And I, I couldn't have told you I was going to go back to D.C. a second time, right? I mean, that's, but an opportunity was there, yeah. uh, a, a great opportunity. So you just got to make yourself available for it yeah. uh, and hopefully prepare yourself for it. So what was that next opportunity in D.C.? You go back to D.C. for another, you know, round of punishment uh, in D.C. Yeah, you so go back. almost a year on detail. Yeah. And they go back to El Centro. Um, great time. You know, the deputy, Chief Chavez, has come over. Absolutely. Now she's transitioning over to El Paso as a chief, which she is now. Yep. Um, and there was an opportunity for Chief Martin, um, who was retiring out of the strategic planning analysis director as a director at chief. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed and I was able to be selected as the the next SPAD director at chief. Yeah. So it was Chief Huffman, which will come interesting later. Yeah. Chief Huffman, Chief Martin, and then I. So we talk about people that kind of fall into, you know, yeah. that job. So before that, there have been many other chiefs before that, but so... More locally, or uh, peer mentors, you see yep. those little stacks going Because Brian definitely was a friend, peer, mentor, yeah. however you wanted to. So, anyways, he retires, and so I go to be the, the SPAD director chief. Yeah, so relationships matter. Yes. Right? Um, tell me, wh what is SPAD? What does SPAD stand for? Strategic Planning and Analysis Directorate. So what do you do? It's gone over a little different names. It's been SPA, SPAPA. You know, oh, yeah. It's always had that planning. They've always played with the, you know, the acronym of how to do it. But SPAD at its core... I say that because, and Brian and I will both say, SPAD at its core is the requirements. Because yeah. no matter which portion of SPAD, we're really about getting the requirements from the field and how do we build that up into whatever program it may be. So you have the, obviously, the operational requirements, which tells how much technology, all those types, what what a sector needs. We're, we're not saying what they need. We're just saying there's a requirement of a need. Right. We don't tell them you need a camera here. We say you need the ability to see five miles in this direction, you know, and, and so it's unique to everywhere along the board. That's truly a requirement. Requirements not telling you you need a camera or you need a truck. That that's that's later down the road. Right. So we get those requirements. You know that's one piece of it. Then we have you know of course we're working on E3, the, the processing and you know our nerds in green again, uh, working on the tag, working on the license plate reader program. A lot of things like oh, I didn't know that would have set in bad. And really only does because there's really no other clean place for it to sit at. Yeah. But it's all those things put together. SPAD really focuses on servicing the field outside the opera. We're the beginning of. We gather those requirements, um, gather that there, there is a requirement. Operations, where you're at, says, hey, yeah, we want to prioritize getting those requirements filled in this location, whether it be Laredo, Del Rio, Tucson, and then PMOD, the, uh, uh, 
um, program management, program management operations directorate. They, um, they're the ones that say, oh, here's a technology that meets what you can, right. what you need to fill that requirement, right. and they purchase it and get it out there. So it's that you know working together, and of course the fourth, EMROD, um, the the mission, mission requirements operations, right? Yeah. You know the four, the four within Border Patrol that really, really service the field. Right. How do we do all those things together? And I definitely have to mention EMROD because my wife runs EMROD. Yeah, so that's right. It's very, it's very important to make sure that's. In, <laughs> but then you know the all four of those working together, not against each other, but there's a flow of how yeah. we we answer the questions to do that, and we ha we all have our piece. Right. Uh, it's not a silo; it's a piece that keeps building, and then that's how we justify it to the appropriators and outside entities is how how we got to needing however many millions sure. for this. It started at the requirement. That's why I say it always starts there because yeah. they can never deny that's what the requirements needed out there for the field. Yeah. I kind of look at it. Um, I've said this, in, I think, in my podcast, but uh, generally over time, I, I aspire to kind of a three, uh, kind of a triangle model of, of kind of reducing risk, and that is leader engagement, readiness, and modernization. I, I, I characterize it with Chief Owens as well. At headquarters, generally, you have four directors working together at that cusp of of uh, readiness, providing ready forces to the field so they can go out and fight tonight and, and win. And then, you know, that re that modernization piece that you talk about, things like license plate readers uh, and, and all these other things that are modernizing the way we do business. If they can, we can kind of gain and sustain overmatch over some of the adversaries that are out there so that we can focus smartly and intently on the true, you know, uh, bad actors that are, that are trying to do us and Americans harm. Uh, and while at the same time dealing with the other uh, kind of uh, list of things that are now board patrol or agents are asked to yep. do. So we have got to get you know more modern in the way we do business so that we can take our, our limited and finite resources and maximize them to the greatest of their potential and, and, right. and, and quite frankly do them as safely as possible. Yeah. So that's and really timely, what it's about. Which is yeah. always hard to do in the government because right. so, everything's knee-jerk reaction. Right. And, and following through with what your plan is, yeah. we've learned so, our lesson on that one. Speaking of timely, <laughs> fast forward to 2021, you know, you're sitting there comfortably in your in your position as the chief of SPAD, which obviously you have a history with. Now they ask you to be the uh, acting executive assistant commissioner for the enterprise services for the entire U.S. Customs and Border Protection in Washington, D.C. So first of all, what is an EAC? And second of all, what is enterprise services? So... The EAC position is Executive Assistant Commissioner. Yeah. Um, and so I'm technically the Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner. Chief Huffman, Carrie Huffman, is the actual EAC. Okay. Um, he's the Acting Chief Operations Officer for CBP mm -hmm, right, right now because um, rightfully so, and you know, it's nice that he's a Border Patrol agent, but they see throughout DHS and outside of DHS, they see his leadership capability, mm. helps guide all of CBP. And he's able to then, again, talk about what CBP requirements are to other people. So, yeah. again, it goes back to requirements and him being a former SPAD director, chief. So, you know, he, he's really being pulled upon to our benefit for CBP to really yeah. represent us in all different types of very high level meetings, White House, everything else. So mm -hmm. thankfully he's willing to step up and do that. But so his deputy leaves. Um, and so there's an opening there and then, but I'm automatically put into acting executive assistant commissioner, yeah. um, fulfilling his role while he's doing the, you know, chief operating officer. So let me, let me give you a little bit and, and I'm going to, I'm going to run through some of these statistics here and then maybe you can kind of give me your, uh, 
your final three summations of what it is you do today and why it matters to the workforce. So in your position, you lead nearly 5,000 ES support uh, personnel at over 200 locations across the United States, uh, providing mission critical support to all of CBP operations. Uh, the ES portfolio includes programming for a $15 billion annual appropriated CBP budget, uh, 95 acquisitions programs valued at $5 billion, more than 7,000 facilities, uh, over 24,000 vehicles, $8.1 billion in property assets, and 3,000 hiring actions per year. This goes on and on and on, and essentially to say that you support you know over 60,000 users in 26 mission essential systems. So distill that for maybe for me in the in the audience for maybe your top three takeaways for what an EAC and ES does. First off, I want to say there's much like in, in, in SPAD, um, surround yourself with very, very smart people. <laughs> and so I did say hiring Dina Cooper oh, yeah. as my deputy in SPAD. A pretty smart move on my part. Yeah. But was, I always tell people, you need to get a Dina. Not my Dina, but you need to get a Dina. Because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the right person around you is is essential. So going into enterprise services, Chief Huffman had done that. He had surrounded himself with a really lot of smart people. Right. Um, so those assistant commissioners, and, and I'll take one step back, why there's an EAC position in CBP now anyways. Because before there was EACs, you had like the chief of the board patrol, you had the what's now the EAC for OFO and you had the EA, what's now the EAC for, for Air Marine. Mm -hmm. And then you had like 27 assistant commissioners. Yeah. All these people were reporting directly to the deputy commissioner. Yeah. If, if you've had five people you have to do PWPs for on a regular, imagine doing almost 30 performance appraisals for SESs across everything and being just that person of the single point, And we talked about it before, like a deputy having a division chief of ops to kind of filter that workload. Yeah. That's how they created an EAC. So you still have the chief of the board patrol. We just call it a chief, but it's an EAC, an EAC for OFO uh, field operations an EAC for air Marine and then trade. You have an EAC. So that's kind of your operational entities because yeah. trade is very operational. People don't think about it, but it's very operational. Yeah. Amazing world too, if you ever get a chance to do it. And then you have enterprise services and operational support the other two. Yeah. Um, so they created those EAC positions and that's really where a lot of the outside operations, they, they put those into OS and ES mm -hmm. and, um, so I have those great assistant commissioners that, that work within EES who are truly the subject matter experts. Sure. Much like the conversation I have with the PICs yeah. is the conversation I have with the assistant commissioners. I'm not here to run your programs for you. Right. It, you all were chosen at a very high level assistant commissioner to do those things. Right. I'm just here to make sure the commissioner, again, it's the same conversation again, you build upon that, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're just doing it at a much bigger level. Right. But if you go into the, the mindset of, you know, I'm here to help you. We're working this together. Right. Uh, I'm not here to first line supervise you, right? Especially at that level. Yeah. You, know, you think Petrosian's charge are type A personalities. Think about <laughs> assistant commissioner level, right? Because they're, they're, you know, they, they've been doing it for a long time in different places, right? We get them from all over the government service and super smart people, super capable people. But that's what makes enterprise services so fun because they know how to do their job. And I just learn from them every day. I'll, you know, everything from the training department, you know, our OTD, um, I love the training program, much less why we're here. But, you know, you, you work for, for AC Hall. That's right. But, I mean, 
how could you not be passionate about your own academy yeah. and then the academy for the the field operation i mean it's it's so interesting to do that then you go over to ofam which is facilities and maintenance so you have all the vehicles and they have all the facilities and we've i mean if you if you've been in the service long enough, it's important where you work and how you and all the things. What's you important do. now? <laughs> and so, uh, and just like we got that infrastructure bill to be like what's important now. So there's billions of dollars past that infrastructure bill for CBP. A lot of money, <laughs> a lot of money was given for modernization of land POEs. Yep. So that's a huge thing for for OFO. Where Borgfo had its huge growth at one time, really building a lot of stations and sectors. Now the POEs, OFO is going to get that opportunity to do that. And the people that manage those programs to do all that, they're dealing with GSA. they got Department of State involved because now you're talking about, you know, Mexico. Bilateral So th there's so much work. going. It's just amazing watching these people go through that prioritization of where we yeah. need to do it. OFO, you know, being the customer at the end. Um, so you just go OIT, which technology. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm so, I mean, I'm amazed. Every time we, they talk to me like it's a basic thing. I'm like, that's amazing. I have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> right? but, but they do a great job of breaking it down for right. you. And OIT, you know, our cybersecurity is probably one of the most major things we have to stay in front of. Wow. And our, we have an amazing OIT staff and CBP that's really leading the government on a lot of stuff. And the other parts of the government are asking our OIT people how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely they have to talk to them because I don't know. So they do a great job. Yeah. Um, but that's how I'm there to support them. What do you need to do your job better? Yeah. Um, I mean, those are some of the big things that are, but it services the people out in the field, right? right. All those things. They're not about serving headquarters. Yeah. You make headquarters work to serve the field. That, I mean, so, so, so many great things out there, but those are some of the things that are in enterprise services that people know. They just yeah. don't know where they're at. Yeah. Um, and, and same could be said to your point for, for operational support. Um, you know, just so Intel. Intel's an operational support. Yeah, that's who would have thought, right? So. Right. It's. I mean, it's a great frame. There's. There's. Uh, the. I think the takeaway is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who don't put on a uniform every day. For example, right? And their they, careers are dedicated to the people wearing the uniforms out in the field. Yeah. So, and you know, it's sometimes as a as an agent, you might you might um, or an officer or an Air Marine agent, you might think that you know headquarters isn't supporting you or big, big CVP is not supporting you. But uh, you know, between Chief Scudder and I, uh, can strongly attest that uh, it literally drives business and people every single day in the, in the national capital region, as we like to say. Um, just because a you know a situation doesn't resolve itself in a manner quickly enough or in a way in which you'd want it to, doesn't mean people aren't really working on your behalf to. To make you more efficient, safer, uh, and just all around a better a better law enforcement officer to, to, to protect our front lines, for example. Yeah. And they are passionate about oh, their man. jobs. I mean, you, I mean, it's it's almost a tear sometimes when they talk about how important it is for them to do right for the yeah. field. Yeah. Um, and I just don't think the field gets to see that enough to yeah. know that those people care yeah. that they're out there risking their lives every day doing their jobs and all yeah. that. So I mean, it's it's great. So, with that. The way we like to conclude um, our our podcast, our What's Important Now podcast, is we talk a lot about Honor First. Um, that that starts from day one, quite literally. Um, the day a, a trainee uh, shows up at this academy, the next morning after they enter on duty here at this academy, the next morning, the first person they talk to is me, the chief of the Border Patrol Academy, about Honor First. And one of the things I tell them is, look, you know, Honor First is a little bit about your why, right? Um, it doesn't... It, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what it means to me or what it means to you. Just understand that it's going to help drive you over your career. It might change a little bit, but um, we don't use it as a bumper sticker, right? Um, it's something that, that actually matters to us, uh, both internally and, and, again, professionally. So I'll ask you, what, uh, what does Honor First mean to you? 
Yes, we've had these discussions over the years, and then when our first really be, when we brought it back to the forefront, it's been around. I mean, oh, yeah. I'm sure Jason or you have like really hit the history of it. And I didn't even know the history how far back it went. It was amazing to me, mm-hmm. but we'd heard it. But one thing we've always talked about, and we go all the way back to my 275 Creek Visions, Integrity, Pride. And then I heard it different. I mean, so you say it, you know, you believe it, you know, the vision. So you really focus on the vision, always being ready, right? And the pride, we should be proud of what we do. Yeah. Integrity, oh, yeah, integrity, I got integrity. But as you go through your career and, you know, being a deciding official for discipline and seeing just the the one thing we get to come in that nobody else controls is your integrity. Yeah, That's yours. Nobody gives it to you. You have it from birth. It's yours to hold on to, and it's also yours to lose. Yeah. And once you've lost it, it's very difficult to get that integrity back. And in the law enforcement world, you almost can't, right? right? It's just, that's just how the world works. And so like when I was speaking to the, yep. the, the new agents, I hate to call them trainees, the new agents yesterday, and I, and I actually focused, I didn't know you were going to ask that today, but that's what I went on about integrity. You cannot lose your integrity. Right. You know, on duty, off duty, that's what you carry your entire career, your entire life. Because even outside of work, you need to have integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard people saying you're doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Mm-hmm. Hey, yes, of course, all those things. That all goes into the integrity. Mm-hmm. But integrity is that one thing you have only you and only you can give it away or lose mm-hmm. it. Um, you'll be tempted. People will try and get you to do it. It won't you know, seem like a good idea sometimes. And maybe you can just lose a little integrity. No, you yeah. can't lose a little integrity. You lose your integrity, you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that yeah, that's what honor first to me is that integrity because that's – that's what sets us apart, you know, in all law enforcement, not just Border Patrol. It's really the integrity of tr- doing the right thing. Um, and we talked about you, there's lots of things you can do, but should you do? And that goes to your integrity as well. Are you justified in doing it? Yes, you can do it. Should you do it? Right. And that's really, you know, some of the things we talk about now. And that's your integrity of, yeah, maybe I don't, I shouldn't do that. I don't need to do that. I can do something else. So, right. um, but yeah, that's, that's on our first for me. Outstanding. Chief, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for mentoring Class 1177, who just graduated this morning. Uh, thank you for being a guest speaker. Thank you for um, all that you do for the entirety of CBP, not only just Border Patrol over time, but uh, the things that you currently do as the uh, acting executive assistant commissioner and the things that uh, we all know you will continue to do on behalf of our men and women. So. Appreciate you, sir. Thank you, Chief. Thank you for your entire staff here at the Academy. It was a great tour getting to go through it and and graduation today. So thank you and everything your staff does. Awesome. That concludes uh, the next episode of the What's Important Now podcast. And as always, honor first.